Hello, and welcome to this Solace Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit solacechurch.com. Matthew 7, verse 24. Notice this important word that Jesus begins with. He says, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. And it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. And it fell and great was its fall. And so it was... When Jesus had ended these sayings, that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Look at chapter 8, just verse 1. And when he had come down from the mountain, it says great multitudes followed him, followed him. Let's pray together. Father, thanks for your word. Thank you, Jesus, for the gift of of your guidance. And we seek now to just... um, have space in our lives for what you want to do. And we know you want to do it through your word. That's how you work. So God, would you give us open ears? Would you give us open hearts? God, there is nothing more exciting than what's on the other side of what you're calling us to. So show that to us today. Bring us closer to what that is. And ultimately, our cry every week is, God, Speak to us. Pray you'd fill me with your spirit to be able to be used by you. And anything that's not of you, just get it out of the way so that you would be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, go ahead and take your seat. Get comfortable there. The butt pads on these seats are great, aren't they? Much, much better than Don Estridge. We're like, yay, Don Estridge, can I bring the chairs? Is that like a goodie bag for coming today? Can you imagine the concierge, like, seeing you guys walking out each with a chair? Like, thank you. All right. Well, man, we started the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.1 with Jesus going up this mountain with a few of his followers to preach his, his sermon to them. And now we find ourselves seeing Jesus descend from the mountain with even more followers. And what an interesting way that Jesus wraps things up. Over the past four months, we have seen Jesus in this sermon cover such a wide variety of topics. Jesus has been, in a a sense, a master teacher, giving a master class in what it looks like to live out the Christian life. What specifically it looks like to live as a citizen of heaven here on earth. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. Jesus is the king, we know this, of another kingdom. A kingdom under which every kingdom will one day be submitted. But that king, who is the king of kings, he's come to earth, and here in the Sermon on the Mount, he's giving us his manifesto. He's saying, this is the government of my kingdom. This is what it looks like to be a part of my kingdom culture. And again, he's giving this to his followers, and he's covering so many topics. This is the greatest sermon ever preached. There's a lot of pressure that's off of me every Sunday because I'm like, Jesus already did it, okay? I don't have to preach the greatest sermon ever. Jesus nailed it here in Matthew 5 through 7. And it's, it's such a, a, 
a diverse sermon. He covers so many things, man. Everything from how we relate to God, first and foremost, as his children. That's, that's where, where Jesus camps out a lot. How God is our father through what Jesus has done on the cross. We become children of God. And that fact that God is now my dad, that should affect things in my life. It affects how I pray. It affects how I give. It affects what I expect from God because he's my dad. So Jesus says in chapter 7, ask. And you can expect to receive, right? Seek and you can expect to find. God is findable. Knock and the door will be open. He's, he's taught a lot on that. And we have a whole sermon archive where you could go back and, and, and catch some of those teachings where we looked at this stuff. But that's been one of the main themes, our relationship with God. Jesus has also taught on our relationship with each other. Probably the other half of the Sermon on the Mount. How important is it if I say I love God, John says, to also make sure I love my neighbor? who's made in the image of God. So Jesus has talked about how to navigate every kind of relationship. He's talked about how to navigate marriage. He's talked about how to navigate relationships with someone who's, who, who ain't your wife, all right? Who's not your man, all right? He's covered how to navigate your commitments. He says, let your yes be yes, let your no be no. He's covered just general principles about how to treat each other. The golden rule comes from the Sermon on the Mount. Treat others the way that you would like to be treated. Jesus has even taught on how to treat and how to relate to your enemies and your frenemies and the people in life that you are not walking in harmony with, right? And he's taught us how to love our neighbor. He's taught us how to deal with people that just get under our skin. Got anybody like that in your life? Don't look at them. Come on, all right? <laughs> How to deal with anger, the anger that can arise in our hearts. Jesus has said so much, and now, as he wraps this thing up, he's going to say the most important thing. He has one final point to make. He has an outro. And if you haven't listened to anything yet, Jesus says you must listen to this final point. Jesus closes with a parable. And in that parable, Jesus is saying this to you and me as his final point. He's saying, in light of all the teaching you've heard, he uses the word therefore, right? In light of all this teaching, he says it's not enough. It's not enough to just hear the Sermon on the Mount. It's not enough to just come to church and listen to a great series on the Sermon on the Mount. It's not enough to just know the Bible and receive the teachings of Jesus. Now, that matters. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. It matters, especially if you're listening to bad teaching. You should listen to good teaching. You should be listening to the teachings of Jesus. That matters. But, though that's important, Jesus says it's not enough. His final point is that something must be done about what you've heard. Something, and I want to emphasize this word, must be done with what you've learned from Jesus. He uses this phrase. He says, therefore, whoever hears the sayings, these sayings of mine that I've just taught, and he says, and does them. That's the big idea. Somebody who doesn't just go, I've learned that, but I'm actually putting it into practice. The Greek word there for does simply means to perform or to carry, uh, carry out or to act out. It's to respond to what you've 
heard. Now, the younger half-brother of Jesus reiterates the same point in principle in the, in the book of James, who many scholars believe was actually had the same father uh, and mother as Jesus. Um, well, same mother, different father. Jesus was the son of God. Let's not get into that, okay? You, you get where I'm going out with this, okay? I don't, Jesus never said, this is my half-brother. You know, he didn't say that, but let's just read the Bible. James 1, 22. Look what, look what the younger half-likely brother of Jesus said. He said, don't just listen to God's word. It's important, but don't just listen to it. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourself. For if you listen to the word and do not obey, it's like glancing at your face in the mirror. You see yourself, walk away, and forget what you look like. Look at this last verse. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, it's a description of God's word, and if you do what it says, and don't forget what you've heard, God will bless you for doing it. That is what Jesus' whole parable about these two houses being built on two different foundations, that's what it's illustrating. The foolishness and or, or, or the wisdom of not just hearing God's word, but doing something about it. Now, I don't know if, if a point in scripture has ever been, has ever been more applicable to a generation than this point to our generation. We, we live in a time where there is more access to Jesus' teaching than ever before. There are podcasts and YouTubes and audiobooks and everything under the sun. It's amazing what you could just pack into your pocket. The disciples didn't have this. They probably would have been really effective if they did. All right, and I could go in a lot of directions with that. I'll just stop. But you understand this, right? You, man, you could go to five different churches on the same block and catch a different series. There's no shortage of teaching and content today in the church, but maybe there is a shortage of practice, living it out, doing what it says. James says doing that, it's like looking in the mirror, seeing what you got to adjust first thing in the morning. You ever taken a look at that, right? Like, hello, okay? You can't go to church like that, right? You butter it up, you brush it, okay? Right, you do the hair. But, but James says to look into God's word, to hear all this teaching and not do anything, it's as foolish as looking at your reflection and then walking away and just coming as you are to church, right? You're forgetting what you saw. It's that ludicrous. Um, Jesus gives a great illustration for this. In the parable, as he's making this point, he wants us to understand what he means by this, right? Because you could just hear that and say, oh, i got to do more, right? i got to read the Bible and do it more. And certainly, James doesn't shy away from telling us, like, Shia LaBeouf, just do it, right? Like, he tells us that, all right? He tells us the Nike trademark. But Jesus illustrates this in a parable to really help us understand what he means. Jesus uses the picture of a house being built, and the foundation that it's built upon to illustrate whether or not you're doing this. And the picture is to help us think about our lives. The question it should lead us to ask is, what foundation am I building my life upon? It's not just hear it and do it. We all fail to do what God calls us to do. Anybody fail to do that this week at all? You fell short in some way? You didn't do what God said to you to do? Or you did the thing God said not to do? That's a normal practice. That's humanity at work. What Jesus is saying here is, is not be perfect. He's saying, build your life upon my teaching. 
orient your life around what you've said. Otherwise, it's just nothing but another sermon. You've got to prioritize what Jesus has said, put his word and way into practice. Um, I thought of a kind of parallel for this, uh, thinking about my upbringing. And, uh, you know, you guys ever seen the movie Sandlot? We said last week, like, it's a prerequisite to be a member at Solus. You have to see Sandlot. And so uh, Judah's in the back doing a crazy dance right now because it's his favorite movie. Uh, we watch it all the time. Uh, classic, classic film. Watched it as a kid. I get to watch it now with my kid. Super fun. Uh, most epic scene in the movie is this verbal diss battle that goes down on the Sandlot between the, the middle school homies and their counterparts, this like cleaned up kind of preppy baseball team. And they're just insulting back and forth, okay? Scab picker, all these like mean, like middle school insults. Some of them are actually derogatory. I won't get into them. Um, middle schoolers, man, watch out, seriously. All right, um, Judah's skipping middle school. We're not gonna allow him to go. Um, <laughs> but there's this, this, this mic drop moment in the battle, right? Where Ham, the catcher, it's his nickname, he looks across at the, the, the opponent and he says, you play ball like a girl. And it's like, that, you're like, that's sexist. And I'm like, I know, I didn't say it, by the way, okay? League of Our Own is another baseball movie with girls. I love that movie, okay? But, but the point is like, that is the, that's the offense of all offenses. Like, you do not say that to a middle school little leaguer, okay? Now, growing up, I didn't play baseball. I grew up skateboarding, okay? It was really immersed here in the skateboard culture of South Florida. Tri-Rail was my transportation, and West Palm Beach to Miami was my playground, baby. Security guards were my enemy. All right, so that was my upbringing, skating here in South Florida, and uh, street skating especially. And, you know, in the skate park, park uh, skateboarding world, especially in the skate park scene, there was the skateboarding equivalent. There's the skateboarding equivalent to a middle schooler of you play ball like a girl, and it's not you skate like a girl, there's actually some incredible female skateboarders, um, but it's this, you're a poser. It's like, well, hold on, what'd you just say? Okay, like, like, can you just like insult my mom or something? Like, that's, that's heavy, bro, you know? Like, I mean, that's how big it is, like, to be called a poser. Now, a poser was someone who would come to the skate park, they would have all the gear, they'd have all the clothes, they'd have their mint condition brand, brand new skateboard. But after a while, you're like, you've had that same skateboard for six months, and there's not a scratch on it. Something's off here, and you say, you're, you're a poser. Do you get the picture? You look the part, but there's nothing in your life that resembles that you're a true skater, right? I remember, uh, I was telling this last week, Last service, I remember as a kid coming outside the skate park one time, and I saw a kid outside with his helmet scraping it on the floor, <laughs> trying to make it look like he was gnarlier than he really was, you know, how to fit the part. And I think, as funny as it is, I think today the American church can look a lot like that. More content, more information. There's more ways to dress yourself up as a Christian today than ever before. But when Jesus looks at your life what kind of foundation does he see? That's what he's getting us to think about, okay? How important it is not just to know the teachings of Jesus, but how important it is to actually live the teachings of Jesus out. And I, can I tell you why? Because there's so, listen closely, there is so much at stake here. Like, I want you to hear that and think about that. There is so much at stake in so many ways for Christians 
to actually be Christians, for us not to be posers, for us to be the real thing. In fact, if you're taking note, why don't you write that down, that phrase. That's the title of the message. I forgot to give it to you. But it's this. It's the stakes are high. Isn't that what Jesus is trying to illustrate? It, he, he shows us the stakes are high. There's so much to gain. Man, there is so much to gain for a generation, for the church in America, for us individually to actually live in the way of Jesus. So much to gain. Amen? There is so much to lose for us not to. The stakes are high. And in fact, that's what Jesus' parable and this sermon actually seeks to communicate. We, we want to do that here. What we want to do for the rest of our time now is look at the solution or look at the question, what is at stake? It's a good question. Okay, Look at your life. What's at stake in your and my life if we don't? follow Jesus? What's at stake if we, as followers of Jesus, listen, simply settle for what we know about him, but don't allow it to change who we are and how we live? What's at stake if we, as followers of Jesus, fill our head with every theological truth we could find without putting it into practice? What's at stake if we don't build our lives upon Jesus as the foundation? I want to give you, we'll see if we can get to all four, but four things. Let's start with the first one. The first thing that's at stake, write this down, is what we'll call spiritual formation. The first thing that's at stake, if we as Christians do not practice the way of Jesus and orient our way, our life around his teachings, and we just hear what he says, the first thing that we'll lose is spiritual formation. Now, as you see up there on the screen, formation, it deals with the question, who are we becoming? And it's based on whatever life template you're following. It deals with the question, who are we becoming? And spiritual formation is based on who or what life template you're following. You see, each one of us have become and are becoming someone right now based on certain rhythms, habits, and practices in our life. Whether or not we realize it, whether or not we're conscious of it, we have all, every single person here, you and I have adopted some kind of life formation template that is shaping who you are and what you do. The question isn't, will you be formed? The question is, by who and into what? Who are you and I becoming? And what life formation template are we following? Now, the invitation from Jesus, this is important to point this out. Um, the Sermon on the Mount, the reason why we say this, this sermon that Jesus is preaching, it's to his followers. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to respond to that invitation? Well, the invitation from Jesus is just what we mentioned. The invitation from Jesus is to come to follow him, to take upon your life his template, to do life his way, not Frank Sinatra's way, right? To do life Jesus' way. In fact, let's look at the very words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 where he says this. This is one of the most familiar verses that many of us miss the true meaning of. But Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight to every single person in this room, he says, come to me. It's first a relationship. It's a person. The thing you most de desperately need in your life right now is not to get life right, and to get these 10 steps to nail it and to do this or that, the most important thing right now is are you right with Jesus? It's your relationship with God. 
God sent his son Jesus to fix what was broken between you and God because of sin. He sent his son Jesus to become sin on the cross. He died in your place so that you, through trusting in what he did, you could be right, to, right with God forever, once and for all and forever. And so Jesus' first invitation is not perform so that I'll love you, but come. I love that. It's an invitation. Come to me. Come know me. And he speaks to all who labor and are heavy laden. Maybe there's been that, that tired where you're just exhausted. And he makes a promise. He says, if you come to me, I'm going to give you the rest you're looking for. But I want you to notice how. The next verse says this. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. You can stop there, Mike. Now, this phrase, take my yoke upon you, is connected to the rest that he's promising. It's not just like abracadabra, rest. It's, no, I have a way of life. I have a, I have a template that will lead you to that rest and to many other things. Uh, in fact, here, the phrase Jesus uses, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, uh, it was used in, that, in the rabbinical culture to describe a rabbi's teaching that he would give to his followers. It was an illustration uh, we know that a yoke, it's, it's that thing that connects an older oxen with a young lad, all right, oxen, all right? And those two oxen, they would be yoked together by the neck, and that mature oxen, he would set the pace, and so that that uh, immature uh, childlike oxen wouldn't stray, it would be connected, and it would start to slowly but surely grow up and just naturally adopt the way, okay? It would be yoked together, and it would learn which way to go through being connected to that leader. And Jesus uses this phrase because in that culture it was used of a rabbi's teaching. So if like a new rabbi came to town, he's like, what's up? You know, Rabbi Isaac's here and he's going to blow out this temple. We're going to have a great conference. He's like, what up? I got my yoke. He comes in and he gives his yoke. He gives his set of teachings that are his template for his way of life. And Jesus says to you and me, come take my yoke upon your life. Come walk with me. Come learn from me. And it's in that process that we experience something called formation. We actually start to take upon the life of Jesus in our own life. This is what it means, by the way, to be a disciple. One of the most overused and underdefined words in all the Bible, the word disciple just means learner. A better understanding of what that word can mean in our culture is apprentice. We are apprentices of Jesus, okay? The apprentice, Jesus version, you know, all right? That's the idea. And, and what do you do when you have an apprenticeship? Anybody ever had that, like an apprenticeship or an internship? There's somebody, whether formal or not, I've had people that I've, in some cases, I just like grab onto their coattail and I like follow them to learn from them. But you, you apprentice, you, you, you spend time with them, you see how they live, and you seek to become like them, like you want to do your craft that way. Well, that's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, you're first someone who has been redeemed and belongs to God, but you've responded to Jesus' invitation to come follow me. Um, we use these three words to help sort of narrow in on what that looks like. What we say here at Solus Church, now let me back up and say this is our mission, by the way. This isn't our mission, you know, because we're creative. But it's why we exist as a people. Like Jesus says, Jesus, this is why you exist, right? Like the church exists as a community of Jesus followers. We, we exist, and our mission statement is this, to center our lives around following Jesus together. 
Now, that might be so Christian and familiar that we don't actually know what that means. And so we use these three words to define what that looks like. Like, this is our goal as a community, to do this together. Being with Jesus, goal number one, knowing him, relationship. Not knowing about him, but being close to him because God has brought us close to him. Learning from Jesus, that's the yoke. What's your way? That's the Sermon on the Mount. It's teaching, right? And then the goal is becoming like Jesus. That's, that's the vision here. Now, as we get back to this idea of spiritual formation that happens in this experience, I think the question to ask is, how does it actually happen? You ever been face-to-face with your inability to change? It's humbling, isn't it? It's like, I guess I'll try harder. How do I, how do, I do this, right? You ever been there? It's like, I want to, but I can't. And some of it is a matter of practice. Like, are you in community? You know, um, are are you into? Are you in prayer? Are you in relationship with God? But, but, but Jesus gives us. I love here in the Sermon on the Mount. He gives us a good balance of understanding. Uh, because what I think what a lot of us do when it comes to change is we we tend to limit it to one of two things. We either think that God is the one who's going to change me, and I'm just going to be here, and He's going to zap me and make me different. Like, I want rest, give me rest, right? I want to be more loving, boom, let me get that love, all right? And that's biblical. The Holy Spirit pours out God's love in our hearts, but we tend to just keep it there. We're kind of, it's like a passive view of formation. The other is like a hyperactive view where you're always trying to be better and change that you do everything in your own strength. You know what I mean? And there's no relationship with God. There's no dependence on God and his spirit. What, what I love about scripture is that, uh, especially in the, in, the, in the book of Philippians, Paul gives a paradigm that helps us think about how formation is worked out in a balanced way. And I want you to see this. okay? Because to bring this all back, what we're talking about here is how important practice is for actually changing and being different. And, and Paul says, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, He's saying, this is your reputation. He says, work, I want you to see this word, work out. That's a effort word, right? That's a perspiration, gym membership word right there. I ain't got one, all right? I have a thing in my garage, okay? All right. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, Go back for a second. Salvation, it's important to point out there. He doesn't say work for your salvation. Jesus paid it all, okay? But there's a working out now that he's, God is still saving me, isn't he? I'm saved eternally, but man, I still need to be saved from the power of sin presently. I might not be clinging to sin, but sin still clings to me. So, so there's still some salvation to work out here in our life. Uh, the word in scripture is sanctification, right? Being made in a process, being transformed in a process. But notice this, you got to work it out. But look at this next verse. I love this compliment. For it is God who works in. Do you see that? It's God who works in you both to, wi- both to will, I want to, and to be the wise man who does for ultimately God's good pleasure. What a beautiful balance. Okay? What you need to see here is that your formation as God is changing you it is not, it is not just your effort. 
You have a God who has his spirit poured out upon your life. All you have to do is ask. You have a God who has grace over your life. You have a God who exists to come alongside you to help you live the life he's calling you to live. God who works in you. It's God who works in you to do it. But it's not just God's responsibility. There's a responsibility put on us to do it, to work it out, to practice. You don't get the muscles if you don't work it out, right? Uh, uh, the way Timothy, uh, Paul says to Timothy is, is exercise yourself towards godliness, there's some effort involved, but it's not this lonely effort. It's this, I've heard it best described the Christian life. It's like trying to max out on a bench. You put everything you have into it. It's the biggest weight you could ever find. Never been in this situation, but if you were, you, why am I just roasting myself so much today, okay? Uh, you're, you're trying to hit that max weight, and when you've gotten to your end, you've put everything forward. It's helpful to have a spotter, right? And he brings you the rest of the way. Can I tell you, that's a great picture of the Holy Spirit. You say, God, I'm giving you everything. I'm putting your word into practice knowing that I have you there. This thing's not going to collapse on top of me. <laughs> Thanks to you. Amen? All right, spiritual formation. Guys, the point is this is what is at stake. There is no formation without practice and repetition. All right, so formation is at stake. So write the second one down. Jesus gets to this next point. Uh, not only uh, spiritual formation, but spiritual wisdom is at stake. Spiritual wisdom. Jesus tells us about these, these two houses, and based on whether or not you're orienting your life around Jesus, you're either wise or foolish. Wise or foolish. He says that straight up. He's like, here's the parable. One dude was wise, one dude wasn't. we got two people, a wise man and a foolish man. Now, it's important to remember that in Scripture, the word wisdom, it resembles uh, not what you know, but, what, but how you live. That's true wisdom. Biblical wisdom is not, um, the way I wrote it down, let me read it to you. Biblical wisdom is not insightful knowing, but it's skillful living. Uh, your true wisdom is not found in how much of the Bible you know, it's how you live. Like people look on, right? So Jesus says there's two guys building a house. You ever actually had that in your life where someone looked, like you looked on at someone, or they looked on at you and you're like, they're like, that doesn't look wise, okay? That's not how you do that. That's what Jesus is getting at, two different ways to live. And notice what Jesus is saying. With these two ways to live, to go my way is the way of the wise, this is just another reason why we should follow Jesus, because God alone is wise, and the only wise way to live is in the eyes of God, in the way of Jesus. It's the wisest way you could live. Anything else, there's this distinction in Scripture, is foolish. Now, there's a whole book in the Bible that Jesus is sort of uh, looking like here that creates this delineation between a foolish man and a wise man. Does anybody know what book that is? What book in the, in, the, in the Bible delineates between a foolish man and a wise man a lot? Yeah, the book of Proverbs. Jesus is being proverbial here, okay? And I want you to just hear. Notice this distinction. And the book of Proverbs is, is written by Solomon who asked God for wisdom, and God gave him wisdom greater than any man uh, who was alive there. And Solomon writes Proverbs, and it, what it forces us to do is to look at our own lives and evaluate who am I? Am I the wise man or am I the foolish man? Listen to some of these verses. A wise man, Proverbs 10. A wise man makes a glad father, but a foolish son is the grief of his mother. Wise people store up knowledge, but the mouth of fools is near destruction. The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish pull it down with her hands. This is probably my favorite one. Ready for this? 
This is so epic. The crown of the wise is their riches, but the foolishness of fools is folly. Bars, right? Like Solomon's like dropping them. The foolishness of fools is folly. That's great. The tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightly, but the mouth of fools pours forth foolishness. All right, so we get this, this, this contrast, right? The wise and the fool. And Jesus says, that's determined in your life, ultimately by how you're orienting your life around my way. And that's what's at stake here. Now, sometimes the biggest obstacle to us actually growing in wisdom is the assumption that we don't need to. Hardest people to teach are people, are people who think they know it all, right? Okay. Um, in fact, look at what Scripture says about being wise in your own eyes. Can you throw that up, Mike? I'm not sure the reference. 26.12. Solomon says, do you see a man who's wise in his own eyes? There is more hope, notice this, for a fool than for him. Because at least the fool knows he needs wisdom. And so, man, if anything, this is just a cry and a reminder to say, God, I need your wisdom. If you've been living, if you look at your life and you're like, man, I don't look like the wise man of Proverbs. I don't look like the wise man building his house on the rock. Maybe you look at your life and you go, I think I'm the guy who's building his house on sand. That's the best place to be right now. Because you're at a place now where you can grow. You're at a place now where God can work with that. And go, okay, well, let's teach you wisdom. Let, let's grow you. And that goes back to the formation thing. But, but this is, listen, can I say, this is the calling that we have in our lives as Christians. Uh, look at Ephesians 5, 15 through 16. We'll go to the next point. This is a little bit of a quicker one. Uh, Paul says, see then that you walk circumspectly. Uh, the word walk circumspectly, uh, the idea of circumspect is that you have like a 360 degree view of your life. Okay? You ever dropped glass barefoot in the kitchen? The way that you, your feet survived that is you walked circumspectly. You didn't go, okay, I'm going to get a broom, you know, like, <laughs> right? You took every step in a calculated way, a calculated way. You made sure you, you didn't end up in a, a difficult place. And, and, and Paul says, see that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. You can just leave it there, Mike, just that one. See, so the definition of what does it look like to live like wisdom, it means that I let God word. I'm building my life on God's word. So every step in my life, I want to think, is this something God wants me to do? How does this align with the teaching of Jesus? Like, I'm a Jesus follower, so I orient my life around his word and his way. When I follow his way, I'm following the way of the wise. What's at stake? Our formation, our wisdom. Thirdly, what's at stake? Our spiritual life. Our spiritual life. If wisdom deals with the question, what am I displaying? And if formation deals with the question, who am I becoming? Your spiritual life forces us and you and me to ask the question, where am I heading? Let me ask you a question right now. Um, At this point right now, where is your spiritual life going? Where is it going? Where is it headed? Based on where it is, where is it headed? What road are you on? What path are you on? What, what man do you resemble? Well, here in, in the sermon that Jesus is preaching, this parable we read, he compares two spiritual life trajectories. That's the illustration. Two spiritual lives. And they certainly have two different destinations, don't they? 
One spiritual life ends in a great fall. Another spiritual life ends in this result of enduring life's difficulties and storms. It's interesting. On the outside, both spiritual lives look the same, don't they? Two houses. White picket fence, right? Tire swing. I don't know if they had that in Israel at that time. No, they, they didn't have tires. You know why? Didn't have cars. Didn't have cars. Okay. <laughs> but on the outside, it looked the same. Came to church. Like, it's us. Only God sees the trajectory of our spiritual life. Really, right? He'll, I mean, the whole point is put people in your life who can see it, who you, who you can be real about it. But what I'm saying is God perfectly sees. God, God always sees even when we're hiding. The question is, and this is, not to, to, this is to, to get us to a place of seeing who that God is, and it causes us to evaluate, where is it going? Am I building my life on Jesus? Am I orienting my life around his way that's going to lead to enduring, or am I going to go the other way? There's a great uh, parallel of this in the book of 2 Timothy. Uh, you have, first, you have a guy named Paul. You guys know who Paul is? He's a baller, okay? Kanye West named a whole album after him called Life of Pablo, okay? All right? It referred to Pablo Picasso, too, and Escobar, so maybe don't listen to that album. But, but the Apostle Paul, there's a reason why people would look up to him. He's um, easily, apart from Jesus, the most influential man in the history of Christianity. He brought the gospel to what would be the ends of the earth in his missionary journeys. He was a pioneer of the faith. But what I love about Paul is not what Paul did in his lifetime. As a young preacher... 32 years old, I've been following Jesus for about 12 to 14 years. What I love most about Paul is that he died as a Christian. This is him on his deathbed. We don't know if he has minutes, hours, days. He certainly doesn't have weeks or months. And Paul is able to say on his deathbed, look at this, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. The contrast of that is a guy named Demas. And just a couple verses later that Paul says, for Demas has forsaken me. Having loved this present world, he departed for Thessalonica. When the storms came, both foundations were revealed. Paul was faithful to Jesus to the very end. Demas, all it took was a couple trials. It took a little bit of pressure where he actually had to decide whether or not he was going to follow Jesus, and it unearthed the fact that he never was. How do you go from following Jesus to forsaking Jesus? Can we talk about this? I'm fascinated by it because of how much I see it. Um, I was talking about this last time, and... Like, just lately, especially, I've been feeling, have you been feeling this? I've felt lonely as a Christian. And I don't mean, like, as a moral person that has good political morals. That's not the same as following Jesus, okay? But I mean who you are in secret. I mean what you how you choose to live when no one's watching. Like, I mean being committed and, and, and faithfully connected to God's word and what God's word says and living according to it. Um, I, just, I just think Jesus meant it when he said that the broad road is the popular route that many are going to find. 
the road to eternity, he says it's few, man, very few find it. It's really easy to find um, pastors and leaders who started really well in ministry and did a lot of great things. It's really hard to find pastors who finish well, whose families still love them, who are still with the same wife. So I, I'm at this place in life where, like, um, I am radically in pursuit of my marriage and my family succeeding over anything at Solace Church. Don't hear that wrong, okay? Um, but I've experienced enough, um, uh, enough loss to my right and left in ministry and in life and following Jesus from friends and people in ministry alike. You've, you've experienced this too, to where if we don't change our priorities, we're going to be another Demas. You know what I mean? Like, I, don't, I, I do not want to forsake Jesus. I want to be, be able to say, I don't, listen, I, I, I care where we're going to be next year as a church. The question I've been asking myself lately is like, who is Andrew going to be at 40? Who's he going to be at 50, 60? Short window, short life. Th think about those things. Some of, some of us, we're too consumed with what we're doing. We have no concern for who we are. That's what matters. Think about your life. Who are you? Who are you becoming? Who are you, are you going to be following Jesus when you're 50? Now, if you're 50, when you're 60. The hardest thing to do, man, if you feel like it's lonely now, you know what's even more lonely than walking with Jesus? The finish line. And so Jesus says, man, here's the recipe. Here's the recipe for finishing well. Build your life upon me. And if you feel right now that you've fallen away, it's okay. Come back. That's the good news. As you go, where am I headed spiritually? Can I tell you, wherever you're headed doesn't have to be your final destination. The Bible says this, repent. Turn. Turn and come back to Jesus. Come back to Jesus. Can I say, because if you don't, can I tell you, that's usually how the end, like, picture there of the completely destroyed house ends up. It's interesting. That doesn't happen overnight, does it, right? Like, you don't go from, like, passionately following Jesus to forsaking him in a heartbeat. You don't wake up one day and go, you know what, man, like, the glories of eternity and the greatest love ever known to man, ah, it's great and all, but I think I'm going to be a bank robber. <laughs> Lucrative, all right? You know what, like, I love my family and I love my wife, but you know what, I'm just going to go find another woman. You know what? I know God's called me to this life, and it's the more, most fulfilling life is, is in his presence, fullness, joy, but I'm just going to, now I'm just going to blend in with everyone. Like, that doesn't happen overnight. Notice this house. It says there in verse 26, it says that it had a great fall, right? A great fall. Why was it so great? Because of how, how, how um, what's the word I want to use here? How chronological and sequential the build was. Does that make sense? Like, think of a storm that comes, and it slowly but surely is ripping away at pieces of the house, right? And next thing you know, it gets to the point where it can't stand anymore, and over time, it's just been dilapidated and ripped apart, and then boom, it's a great fall. I want you to kind of see what that could look like in our lives. I don't usually think that, it, that you just fall down and crash spiritually overnight. It usually takes a, a form that looks a little bit like this, a, a form of falling, a spiritual form of falling. Uh, usually what happens is it starts, okay, it starts with just simply falling off in discipleship to Jesus. This is usually where it goes wrong, just little things. Like I even found this in my relationship with my wife, like we're having three kids now, when we fall off our date night, like we got a date night, spiritual discipline, go to Louis Bossy downstairs, 
all right, once a year, and we can afford it. And, you know, and that, that rhythm, man, it's amazing. We know when, when things are off. It's like, when have we had FaceTime? You know what I mean? Same thing with the Lord. It starts there. You lose your FaceTime. You fall off in your discipleship to Jesus. You start to, to lax. You start to slide back in your rhythms. And, and just simple things like reading your Bible and praying every single day. Like, I'll tell you what, that'll, that simple truth will take you to the finish line. Isn't that crazy? I, do, I need to get a, do I need a master's of divinity to get across the finish line? How many times do we have to serve in kids' ministry, Andrew? Just tell me. I'll do it. Have a relationship with God where you hear him and he hears you. Watch. Watch what that will do for your life. It starts with falling off. After falling off, what begins to happen is when we fall off in those disciplines, we start to fall away in our relationship with God. We just start to drift. You know what I mean? It's a current. Slowly but surely, we go from falling away to falling out of love with God, which is the whole point of this thing. He loved us first. We love him back. It's all a love relationship. If I'm not with him, knowing his love, my heart begins to grow cold. And I leave what Revelation says is my first love. And I start to drift, man. I fall out of love with him. And that's often accompanied with falling into old patterns of living. Okay? So you, you fall off of your spiritual disciplines and you fall, start falling into other habits. Right? And it's just like a chipping away at the foundation. It's another, it's another storm. It's another wind gust. After falling into those patterns of living, we begin to fall back on the former idols that God has called us out of. We fall back. The Bible says, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. I'm good. I'm on my own two feet. I've been free, clean, and sober from that for this many years. You're underestimating your enemy. You're underestimating your tendencies. You're, you're not having a healthy fear. It's a slow, slow fade to black, as they say. You fall back on these former idols that you've turned from. You begin to then, listen, you get to this point where you start to fall apart spiritually. And all of a sudden now, like theologically, you're like, okay, I don't even know what I believe anymore. Is God good? And I've always found that like my, when I was walking with Jesus, especially early on, like a lot of my greatest struggles with faith and theology uh, we're often at times where I was struggling with sin the most. It's amazing how sin like gets me to start questioning God. I don't have much else to say about that. <laughs> right? But you get to this place where you just start falling apart. And you're like, you don't believe what you used to. It's weird. You just start changing. And then you end up in this place you, you, where, where no one wants to be. But you fall short of God's plan for your life. Nobody signs up for that. Nobody signs up to be a Demas. We sign up to be a Paul. But not everyone ends up as a Paul right? because we fall short and, and in the end, our spiritual life falls down altogether and we're like this house of a great fall. Okay? What's at stake? Our spiritual life, where we're headed. And can I invite the band up to close with this last one? You guys, you guys got room for one more? I promise it's like two minutes. You're like, yeah, right, pastor. All right. Last one. What's the last thing at stake? I, this is where we got to close. Our spiritual impact. Did you notice that when Jesus, after he taught this parable, it says that many were astonished at his teaching. And we, look, we, looked, at it, we looked at that in, in chapter 8, verse 1. It says, and then many people began to follow him. Isn't that awesome? So Jesus goes up the mountain with a few disciples. 
He teaches his followers about the way of the kingdom, people looking on. By the way, this is the best way to lead people to Jesus is lift up Jesus. It's amazing. Jesus will draw people to himself. That's not our job. How can I make Jesus acceptable and pull you in, okay? Well, I should do this in youth ministry. We have pizza and Mountain Dew. Come on. All right. Jesus says, if you lift up the Son, I will draw all men unto myself. That's why we're soulless church, all about Jesus. Amen? So, so Jesus, he teaches. People see Jesus on this mountain, and now he has many followers. Many followers follow him. And there's one thing in particular about him that drew them to him. And it was the, the authority with which he taught. It was different than the scribes. The scribes in that culture, we read that, they, they just regurgitated what everyone else said. Well, Gamaliel says this. Here's his commentary. But Jesus came on the scene, and like his relationship with God was so authentic. His truth, right? Like who he was as the son of God. It made people go, that, that authority is what I need in my life. I'm drawn to that. It's more than just teaching. It's living. Something about Jesus. People looked on his life, and he practiced what he preached. He was a better liver than he was a speaker. Not like the organ, right? But, okay. And man, when I think about what's at stake here, like if anything matters most, just in the time we're in, man, for our lives, I think about the impact that God wants us to have on this world. And I think about how important practicing what we preach is. Today, you have a lot of Christians with positional authority. God has given me the authority. I have the authority in Christ. Do you have moral authority, right? What about your life? Your life speaks louder than everything. And this is what's at stake. Like we exist as a people to follow God and bring people with us. You're called to your neighbors. You're called to influence them. You're called to influence every person in your workplace. You're the missionary that God has sent. But how you're living might mean more than just what you're saying. There's something about this. There's a lot at stake. And I know the tendency of the teaching was to focus so much on what there is to lose. But can you just hear me say, this is not what this is about, right? When I make these points, I'm talking about all there is to gain. That's what the Christian faith is about. You gain more than you could ever lose in Jesus. So Paul says, man, I count it all as rubbish. It doesn't compare to a relationship with the living God. So may we, as we stand together, join me here as we close. We're going to sing out Jesus being the king of our hearts. And the hope of this is that we ask God to make it more than a lyric. We ask him to really stamp that deep on our hearts. When we sing God be the king of my heart, what we're saying is God be the foundation that I build my life on. All right? And so here's a chance for us to turn to God in faith right now, to look to Jesus and to say, God, there's too much to gain in you, in you to not build upon.